this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light used on text for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 23. It's the basis for the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on November 27, 2022. It's the first message in a new series called The With Us God. The With Us God. And it's our series uh, for worship that will guide us through the season of Advent, that's the four Sundays prior to Christmas, and through Christmas season, all 12 days of Christmas, beginning on Sunday, the 25th of December, which is Christmas Day, and also the Sundays that follow for a couple of weeks. We open uh, this story to one of the, the biblical characters that help frame the nativity story of Jesus. And from the Gospel of Luke, we begin uh, before Mary, before Joseph, before Jesus. We start with the parents of John the Baptist. Uh, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, right at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, we hear the unfolding story of John the Baptist's parents. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, the story starts out in the first uh, opening verses, verses 5 to 10, describing somewhat of the problem and the promise faced by Zechariah and Elizabeth. The story tells us that Zechariah the priest served during the time of the days of Herod, and he was part of the the, um, uh, the assignment or the group or the rotation of priests in the Abijah uh, group. Now, why that is uh, significant for us is that priests served in one of uh, 24 different uh, teams that would then rotate through the year. Each team was responsible for one week during the year and then another week during that same year. So out of the 24 teams, each team would serve for two weeks, one week in one part of the year, another week in a different part of the year. The team of Abijah was the eighth in that sequence. Now, there were a total of about, uh, scholars disagree on this, but 8,000 or so priests who served in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and they were part of the same rotation for duty. So this rotation of the Abijah team, if you will, had come up, and since Zechariah was a part of that team, he was expected to come to Jerusalem for his week of priestly service. Now, he was married to a woman named Elizabeth, who was of the house of Aaron. Now, it was expected that every priest who worked in uh, Jerusalem would marry a pure Israelite. So this notion of racial purity was still important even in the first century. But for priests, it was preferred that they married uh, a person who was of the house of Aaron. Now, house of Aaron is the house from which all the priests come. So that means Elizabeth was part of a priestly household as well. Perhaps her parent or someone else had been a priest in Jerusalem as well. And so uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been married for quite some time. It says that they were both righteous and they kept God's commands according to Luke chapter 1. But, and here's the problem, they were without child. And not only they were without child, but they were without child, as we'll learn later in the story, at much more uh, aged or advanced years. So the, the likelihood of them having a child probably had come and gone. 
Now, this is important in the ancient world to understand how they viewed this situation. For us, when we see in the 21st century uh, a couple who are trying to have a child and unable to do so, uh, that's a, a mark for us of, of sympathy and, and a, a need to come alongside those people as they, they try to move through that experience. But in the ancient world, it was very different. To be without child was a sign of punishment, even sin. And so that uh, for you to have no children whatsoever meant that somebody somewhere had done something wrong and that was God's judgment against you, that there was no continuation of your household in any way. Something here just doesn't make sense. How is it that Zechariah and Elizabeth could be, as they say, righteous and kept God's commands, yet they didn't have a child? Luke is trying to weave a story that helps us question what's going on in the story. It doesn't seem to make sense. Luke takes care to paint this story with Abraham and Sarah in the background, Abram and Sarah. Now, you might remember uh, the story in Genesis that talks about how Abram and Sarai at that time uh, were without a child and became quite old. And then God comes to them and tells them that they would have a child. And that child, of course, would be Isaac. Luke paints the story in very much the same terms. So he's wanting us to to recall the story of Abram and Sarai, who would become Abraham and Sarah in the back of our mind uh, because they're so closely connected in some ways. Now, it turns out that Zechariah's division or his team, the Abijah division, was on duty and had a rotation in the temple. And he was chosen by lot to do the incense. Now, this is a rare occurrence. And it usually only uh, happened maybe once in the lifetime for a priest. So imagine the whole team goes to Jerusalem. They're working in the temple. They have a variety of different duties they do. And there's incense that's lit two times a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And so uh, they draw lots to determine which one of the priests is going to go in and place the incense on the coals that are on the altar inside the temple. This is the, the most important and sought-after duty for all the priests because that altar of incense was right up next to the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the Jewish temple. Now, behind that curtain is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been if it had not been lost centuries earlier, but the sacredness of that location remained. And so Zechariah, he's up. It's his moment to go burn the incense. This is something that a priest um, may only get chosen to do one time in their life. And a matter of fact, once you have done this service of placing incense on the altar, you're never allowed to do it again. This is likely during the afternoon prayer service, which occurred about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And during this prayer service, there were often prayers and intercessions made for the salvation of Israel. So while he's at the altar, he goes in with the incense, he gets, comes to the altar, which has burning coals on it, and he's going to place on top of it the incense, and the smoke is going to go up, the incense that symbolizes the prayers of the nation of Israel. He's as close as he can get to the separation of the holy of holies and the holy place. He's right as close as any person can get other than the high priest to that sacred space. And while he's doing that outside, the people are praying. And this is usually a very, very short time of prayer, long enough for Zechariah to go in. He places the incense. He bows down on the floor. He prays for a few moments, and then he leaves. And this opens up a bit of a key passageway to us here, that persistence and patience 
oftentimes lead to promise. As a priest, Zechariah certainly knew what it meant for he and his wife to have no child. And it was a stigma carried by him privately and publicly. There was no escaping it. Remember in the ancient world to have no child meant that you were under some form of judgment by God. And there was no way he could avoid it. So wherever he went, where whatever he did, his own personal reflections often centered around this uh, sense of public and private shame of having no child. But yet, Zechariah persists in his priestly work with faithfulness. He is undaunted. He goes out, he does his duties, he performs the work he's supposed to, and even on this auspicious occasion of being selected to bring the incense to the altar, he is undaunted. He thought that drawing the lot for incense was the promise of all of his waiting. Priests wait a lifetime for that opportunity. Little did he know what was to come. There's a great promise that unfolds in this story when Zechariah is there, bowed down at this altar after he's burned the incense and all the people are praying outside waiting for him to emerge. So while he's bowed in prayer for Israel's salvation, which is typically what he'd be praying for, the angel Gabriel appears to him, to his right. Gabriel has only made one other appearance by name in the Bible, and that was as a response to Daniel's prayer about exile that you can read about in Daniel chapter 9 and and some earlier chapters. Uh, Daniel's praying about how long will the exile of the Jewish people last in Babylon centuries earlier, and the angel Gabriel comes and delivers an answer to him. So the themes of these two stories are very similar, that, that Daniel is praying for Israel's salvation and Gabriel appears to him. Zechariah is in the Jewish temple praying for Israel's salvation, and Gabriel appears to him. And he appears, and Zechariah is filled with uh, fear. This follows a tried and true form of angelic appearances in the Bible, that when an angel appears or God appears in what's called a theophany, there's a moment in which those who see this appearance are gripped by fear. The response, though, by the angel or by the, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is always the same. Do not be afraid. Jesus uses this assurance many times. He tells his disciples when they see something happen that they don't expect or understand, he tells them to not be afraid. Later on in Luke's gospel, in just the next chapter or two, when the angel comes and speaks to Mary about the the birth of Jesus that is to come, he tells her to not be afraid. In Matthew's gospel, Joseph is told to not be afraid. These are common themes uh, we read about these angelic appearances. Uh, in which God's word is spoken to anyone. The message is complex that the angel Gabriel gives to um, Zechariah. Uh, he tells Zechariah in, um, in verse 12 that your prayer has been heard. And what does that mean? His prayer has been heard. Now the angel Gabriel is going to give that some context. Prayer has been heard. Zechariah would think, oh, Israel's salvation has come. Well, uh, instead, or maybe um, exactly explaining that very same thing, there's the irony of the story. He tells Zechariah that he's going to bear a son and that his name is going to be John and there will be joy and gladness over his birth with others. And this is uh, uh, a foreshadowing of the connection that Mary and Elizabeth will have later in Luke's gospel when they meet together and uh, they're 
unborn children leap for joy in their wombs when they meet. The angel goes on to tell Zechariah that his son will be great in the sight of the Lord, that he won't drink any wine or beer or any other alcohol, that he'll be filled with the spirit of the Lord. Uh, This is uh, calling out some linkage to the old Nazarite vow, not Nazarene vow, the Nazarite vow we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, This particularly has to do with people like Samson and to some degree Samuel, who are part of this Nazarite vow, either for their life or for a period of time that they would drink no wine or beer, they never would cut their hair. They, they had a variety of practices that were part of the Nazarite vow. And uh, the angel Gabriel is kind of touching the fact that John is going to be uh, uh, developed in kind of that uh, kind of a community or that way of life, if you will. But then he tells uh, Zechariah about the effect of this ministry that will happen through their unborn child named John that he will turn many in Israel back to God and that he will go before him who has not yet been made apparent, go before someone and that there will be a turning of people. This word for turn or turning that you read about in this particular text envisions repentance, that the people of Israel will be called to a new way of being, to a new way of understanding themselves and that this uh, son that Zechariah named John uh, will go about doing in his life. And that opens up the key passageway for us here, that, that the promise of God is always wider and deeper than we can imagine. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for a son, uh, which they likely had probably given up on, given their advanced age. God is always working beyond our comprehension and grasp. Now, this is not to say that all situations resolve like this one. But God is always at work in pain, in suffering, in lamentation, in hardship. God is never causing those things, but God is always working through those things. And so we can find hope and trust, not in our vision for our life, but in God's vision for our life. The struggle we have as human beings is whether or not we are going to trust, to trust enough to let go and trust in God's grace for our lives and the lives of others. And finally, we turn to the closing part of the story, verses 18 to 23, about how this new possibility could, possi- could happen. How could this emerge for Zechariah? So after the angel Gabriel explains uh, the birth of John and what that's going to mean and what the outcomes of John's ministry might look like, Zechariah asks the exact same question that Abram did when he was told that Sarai would be with the child. Zechariah says, just like the Genesis story of Abram, how will I know this? I am an old man and my wife is advanced in her years. It's only here that we learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth were aged people. And uh, he responds with a, a sense of incredulity, like how could this possibly happen? We're, we're, we're not even uh, thinking about having children. We're well past that. There's no sense in the story, we have to be careful here, there's no sense in the story that Gabriel is put off by that question. So we shouldn't conflate what happens to Zechariah after this conversation with this, as, as his question being the cause of it. Now, Zechariah, as we're going to learn in a minute, is not going to be able to speak until all this comes to pass. Like he's rendered unable to 
to bring words forth. He is mute, as it would say in the text. Mute or dumb is the way the text names it in Luke chapter 1. This has more to do with the hiddenness of what God is doing until the right time. This is not a form of punishment upon Zechariah because he's questioned the angel Gabriel. His question is exactly the same as Abram's. This has more to do with that hiddenness of what God is doing until the right time. So again, this is back to the work of God again before we have an awareness of it. That God is always moving and working, even in the pain and suffering before there's an awareness of it. Zechariah and Elizabeth are not part of that work. But Jesus does the very same thing. He commands his disciples to keep things secret. He tells them at times to not talk about things with other people. And so in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're not supposed to be sharing what this is or what this means yet. I mean, after all, Zechariah is in the temple just having lit the incense on the altar and is ready to come out and make an appearance before the people. And when he comes out, he's supposed to speak a blessing to them. He's supposed to speak what's the called the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. That blessing to all the people. So when he comes out, they're expecting him to say something. So after having this powerful moment with the angel Gabriel speaking to him, um, Zechariah is not able to say anything at all. It's, it's about keeping this moment held until the right time. Now, the people knew Zechariah was gone for a while. They expected him to come out shortly. And so the text tells us they became worried. They're wondering what could have happened. There's all sorts of myths and stories uh, that we read about what happens when bad thing, when things go wrong inside the temple. There's some stories in the Old Testament about priests that, that did some of the rituals incorrectly and were struck dead. So when somebody goes in the temple to do something and they don't come out when they're expected to, the level of anxiety starts to go up. And then the scene is, to be honest, at the end of verses uh, 20 to 23, the scene is somewhat comedic. That, you know, Zechariah comes out of the temple after having been in there and seen the angel Gabriel. He's unable to speak. Everyone is looking to him to give the ironic blessing, but he can't say anything. So he makes nods and gestures trying to indicate what happened. So the people concluded that something happened to him while he was in there. They just don't know what happened. But it's interesting to me that Zechariah goes about his priestly duties for the rest of the week. And as the story goes on, if we were to keep reading this text, Zechariah goes home and he finishes his work. He, he helps us understand something so important that is a key passageway for us. And it's this, holding the promise of God is a treasure. You know, Zechariah's silence is a witness to the awe-striking holiness of God's promise. Now, who knows? Perhaps Zechariah would have been tempted to walk out of the temple and tell everybody exactly what happened to him. But instead, it says, he finished his priestly service for that week. He went home to his wife with Elizabeth. And there she became pregnant. She eventually gave birth to a child whom they named John. And they stay in seclusion there for five months. Now, notice you know, Zechariah would normally have two different weeks of service during the year separated by six months from each other. So the text makes sense that he went home with Elizabeth and they stayed there for five months. Five months would have been enough time for Zechariah to stay there before he would have had come back to the temple to do more priestly service. And it was also the adequate amount of time Elizabeth could have stayed in seclusion before she could no longer conceal her pregnancy. Sometimes we have to hold God's work and word in a quiet and cherished way. 
not everything needs to be verbalized, written, and drawn. So often we talk about needing to give expression to things, and I don't want to underestimate that. That's so very true. But there's also another side of that tension to be held, and it's this, that in the age of over-communicating, how do we hold on to God with care and modesty? I hope these are some questions we can think about in a way that allow us to treasure the promise of God that's been given to us. If you have comments and reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see a drop-down menu with the word Podcast. Select that, and then click on this week's episode and leave a comment. Also, please visit our church's website at ffmc.org to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.